What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your friend, your host, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, and it is suddenly sultry indeed here in Savannah. The warm weather has finally come. I have been living in dread of this moment for the last six or seven months when the spring would give way to the warmer weather, and now it is upon us, 90-something degrees here in May, and has been for some days. However, perhaps my blood has thinned somewhat. I am not minding it. It is just fine. Now, the summer savanna humidity has not yet crept up the barometric scale, so when that happens, perhaps my opinion will change, but it is with some relief that I report to you as of this moment, in mid-May, that I am dealing just fine with Savannah Summers. I speak to you today on a, uh, well, two days after a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. And uh, yeah, it is just one of those things it happens, oh, just about every day here in America. It's a terrible thing. And when it happens, I find myself screaming into the void on Twitter, just screaming into the void about guns and gun control. And I stake out an untenable position and then let the trolls attack me. Untenable only because nobody wants to do it, but to me, an eminently practical position, and that position is the following, we should repeal the Second Amendment, an amendment that has caused us no end of trouble in the last, oh, I don't know, 60, 75 years. Just a terrible, terrible amendment, badly written, badly interpreted, and now 
the source of so much aggravation and pain in this country. Now, nobody has any appetite for repealing the Second Amendment other than me, and even I would not eliminate private gun ownership in this country. But if you say repeal the Second Amendment, people get all, in pun very much intended, up in arms. Of course they do, because they are screaming about their freedoms, and I suppose they have every right to do that. The Constitution says you have the right to bear arms. Of course, they leave out the well-regulated part. They leave out the all the parts that they don't care for. But in my estimation, what should happen is the Second Amendment should be repealed and amended and reintroduced as something else, something a little more strict shall we say. So that's been a bummer, you know, because I, I, I uh, you know, I get upset about these things. I get upset. And, and there were, and it wasn't the only one. There were several other mass shootings over the last few days. There will probably be, probably be one today. And by the time you listen to this episode, undoubtedly, there will be at least another. Uh, they are unrelenting. They are ceaseless. They are preventable. That's the thing that nobody seems to acknowledge they are preventable. How are they preventable, Michael? Well, you get the fucking guns off the streets. You get rid of the fucking guns. Well, how, Michael? There's 390 million of them in this country. Yep. Well, you got to start somewhere. You start by uh, banning the shittiest ones. You make it harder to get new ones. You make ammunition difficult to get. You You just make it such a pain in the ass to get a gun and to keep a gun that people don't want to keep them unless they have real need for them, and most people don't. These things are preventable. We choose not to prevent them because we have a country of gun fetishists and freedom fetishists. And what I mean by that isn't that freedom isn't something to be fetishized, because I suppose freedom is, in in the sense that, uh, uh, like most people, I am a maximalist when it comes to freedom. But I think the term, the word, is abused, and I think it has come to mean something that it does not mean. Because freedom, in my estimation, does not include the freedom to harm others. And the Second Amendment explicitly allows that freedom, uh, or perhaps implicitly allows that freedom. Or I should say, let me refine that even further, because I'm just talking off the top of my head and probably not making much sense at all. And certainly some of you will be shaking your head and saying, no, Michael, you're not. You're just a fucking idiot. And to that, I would say I mostly agree. Um, I will refine it further to say that the interpretation of the Second Amendment has made the implicit explicit, that if you are going to essentially allow private arsenals, which is what our Second Amendment now allows, you are not only enabling but guaranteeing a unending drip, drip, drip of gun deaths. Preventable, as I say. So that's what's on my mind. You know, I I hate to be up on my soapbox, but, you know, in particular, because now I'm promoting 
my, the paperback edition of my book, A Better Man, which just came out. And, uh, you know, that book begins with me recounting the Sandy Hook tragedy. The book itself, the writing of it, was precipitated by the Parkland shooting tragedy. I don't even like using the word tragedy when it comes to these things. They're not tragedies. They're massacres. Um, the Sandy Hook massacre, the Parkland massacre, and now we have the Buffalo massacre, all the ones in between and all the ones still to come. So it's impossible for me to think about my book without thinking about these massacres. And uh, yeah, so it's very much top of mind for me. Good way to alleviate some of that. Well, I don't know if pain is too strong a word, but maybe not. Some of that pain is to delve back into a growing love triangle there at Thrush Cross Grange. We've got young Isabella Linton, sister of Edgar, 18 years of old, charming but infantile in manners, according to Mrs. Dean, who has developed a bit of a crush on her new house guest, who goes by the name of Heathcliff. Heathcliff has wormed his way back into, well, I guess the property of Thrushcross Grange, um, and is now being currently tolerated by Edgar Linton and, of course, Catherine, his betrothed. Edgar's betrothed is remains smitten with him. So we've got a bit of a love triangle developing here. And Edgar does not approve of Heathcliff, as we know. Certainly will not approve of Isabella's little crush on him. And as for Heathcliff's feelings regarding the matter, who's to say? But it is certainly possible that Heathcliff will reciprocate with Isabella. That is possible, as it would keep him in the family bosom and allow him to, uh, to uh, maybe accumulate a little wealth. You know, a man of no name. A nameless man, as Edgar Linton referred to him earlier, now may see an opportunity to be close to Catherine and... Uh, and grub up a little steak for himself. So let's see what happens as we continue Chapter 10, Wuthering Heights. So let me, I'll just re recount the last little bits. This is Edgar, this is Mrs. Dean uh, talking about Edgar's attitude towards Heathcliff. He dreaded that mind. It revolted him. He shrank forebodingly from the... I oh, my goodness. Let me just cough a little bit there. Oh, very inappropriate when you're trying to, when you're trying to read a book. He shrank forebodingly from the idea of committing Isabella to its keeping. He would have recoiled still more had he been aware that her attachment rose unsolicited and was bestowed where it awakened no reciprocation of sentiment. For the minute he discovered its existence, he laid the blame on Heathcliff's deliberate designing. So Heathcliff apparently has no interest in Isabella whatsoever, but Edgar's still pissed at Heathcliff anyway uh, for, you know, engineering this little crush. And to be fair... I would, 
I, you know, as much as, look, we all want to be Heathcliff. We all want to be the brooding, morose, goth kid. But the fact, the simple fact of the matter is I'm much more Edgar than I am Heathcliff. Prissy and jealous and whipped and, you know, just the worst. I'm just the worst. And I, I would be cast as Edgar in the uh, movie adaptation of this. Just mincing around, you know, dipping cookies into tea and trying to have strained conversations. That's, that's who I am. But Heathcliff has no interest. But, he, but of course, Edgar thinks, you know, Heathcliff is, 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 is doing this all on purpose. We had all remarked during some time that Miss Linton fretted and pined over something. She grew cross and wearisome, snapping at and teasing Catherine continually, at the eminent risk of exhausting her limited patience. Interesting uh, spelling of teasing, T-E-A-Z-I-N-G. Never seen that before. We excused her to a certain extent on the plea of ill health. She was dwindling and fading before our eyes. Wait, wait, what? She's dying? Isabella Linton is dying? Why? Why? That, that seems to come out of nowhere, and, or I just forgot about it, but why is she dying? But one day, when she'd been particularly wayward, rejecting her breakfast, complaining that the servants did not do what she told them, that the mistress would allow her to be nothing in the house, and Edgar neglected her, that she had caught a cold with the doors being left open, and we let the parlor fire go out on purpose to vex her— with a hundred yet more frivolous accusations, Mrs. Linton peremptorily insisted that she should get to bed, and having scolded her heartily, threatened to send for the doctor. Mention of Kenneth caused her to exclaim instantly that her health was perfect, and it was only Catherine's harshness which made her unhappy. "'How can you say I am harsh, you naughty fondling?' cried the mistress. "'Amazed at the unreasonable assertion, you are surely losing your reason. "'When have I been harsh? Tell me.' "'Yesterday,' sobbed Isabella. "'And now?' "'Yesterday,' said her sister-in-law. "'On what occasion?' "'In our walk along the moor, you told me to ramble where I pleased "'while you sauntered on with Mr. Heathcliff.' And that's your notion of harshness, said Catherine, laughing. Oh, good, because I was laughing, too. It was no hint that your company was superfluous. We didn't care whether you kept with us or not. I merely thought Heathcliff's talk would have nothing entertaining for your ears. Oh, no, wept the young lady. You wished me away, because you know I like to be there. Is she sane? asked Mrs. Linton, appealing to me. I'll repeat our conversation word for word, Isabella, and you point out any charm it could have had for you. I don't mind the conversation, she answered. I wanted to be with well, said Catherine, perceiving her hesitate to complete the sentence. With him, and I won't be always sent off, she continued, kindling up. You are a dog in the manger, Cathy, and desire no one to be loved but yourself. "'You are an impertinent little monkey!' exclaimed Mrs. Linton in surprise. "'But I'll not believe this idiocy. "'It is impossible that you can covet the admiration of Heathcliff, "'that you can consider him an agreeable person. "'I hope I have misunderstood you, Isabella.' "'No, you have not,' said the infatuated girl. "'I love him more than you ever loved Edgar, "'and he might love me if you would let him.' "'I wouldn't be you for a kingdom, then,' 
Catherine declared emphatically, and she seemed to speak sincerely. Nellie, help me to convince her of her madness. Tell her what Heathcliff is. An unreclaimed creature, without refinement, without cultivation, in arid wilderness. Wilderness? Come on, Michael, learn how to read. Wilderness, although I do like that as a word. Wilderness. An arid wilderness of firs and windstone. I'd as soon put that little canary into the park on a winter's day as recommend you to bestow your heart on him. It is deplorable ignorance of his character, child, and nothing else which makes that dream enter your head. Pray, don't imagine that he conceals depths of benevolence and affection beneath a stern exterior. He's not a rough diamond, a pearl-containing oyster of a rustic. He's a fierce, pitiless, pitiless, wolfish man. I never say to him, let this or that enemy alone, because it would be ungenerous or cruel to harm them. I say, let them alone, because I should hate them to be wronged, and he'd crush you like a sparrow's egg, Isabella, if he found you a troublesome charge. I know he couldn't love a Linton, and yet he'd be quite capable of marrying your fortune and expectations. Avarice is growing with him a besetting sin. That's my picture. And I'm his friend. <laughs> so much so that had he thought seriously to catch you, I should perhaps have held my tongue and let you fall into his trap. Mrs. Linton regarded her sister-in-law with indignation. For shame, for shame, she repeated angrily. You are worse than twenty foes, you poisonous friend. Ah, you won't believe me then, said Catherine. You think I speak from wicked selfishness? I'm certain you do, retorted Isabella, and I shudder at you. Good, cried the other. Try for yourself, if that be your spirit. I have done, and yield the argument to your saucy insolence. <laughs> I mean, it goes on. Maybe I should just read it and then... All right, well, let's just see. And I must suffer for her egotism, she sobbed, as Mrs. Linton left the room. All, all is against me. She has blighted my single consolation. But she uttered falsehoods, didn't she? Mr. Heathcliff is not a fiend. He has an honorable soul and a true one. Or how could he remember her? Banish him from your thoughts, miss, I said. He's a bird of bad omen, no mate for you. Mrs. Linton spoke strongly, and yet I can't contradict her. She is better acquainted with his heart than I, or anyone besides, and she never would represent him as worse than he is. Honest people don't hide their deeds. How has he been living? How has he got rich? Why is he staying at Wuthering Heights, the house of a man whom he abhors? They say Mr. Earnshaw is worse and worse since he came. They sit up all night together continually, and Hindley has been borrowing money on his land, and does nothing but play and drink. I heard only a week ago. It was Joseph who told me. I met him at Gimmerton. Well, I'll just stop for a minute, and then, well, well, actually, let's just take a break. Here on Obscure. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure. Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I need to stretch a little bit. So, Catherine and Isabella at loggerheads over Heathcliff, and Catherine just running him down to Isabella, just bad-mouthing the hell out of the love of her life, Isabella rightly perceiving that she is full of shit. Now, whether she's full of shit, actually, she isn't. Well, we don't know. Let's, let's, let's be honest. We don't really know Heathcliff's heart, even 94, 95 pages into the book. It remains a closed box, does it not? And only Catherine, it seems, has the key to open it. And even she has only heard a few tumblers click into place. She has not quite unlatched that lock. Um, and shut up! Yeah, yeah, shut up, you dumb dog! And young Isabella uh, Isabel Linton, of course, has, has no chance of penetrating the gloom of his soul. It is, it would be an impossible task for her. But that being said, Catherine is warning her off correctly that Heathcliff is very unlikely to have any interest in her at all and that she could not contend with him. But at the same time, we understand that she is protecting her rear guard because she does speak from wicked selfishness. She does want Heathcliff all for herself. We know that to be true. Um, She certainly has some cake and she wants to eat it. And when that cake is gone, she still wants to have some cake. There's probably a better way to phrase that, but I don't know how. So, you know, the two sisters-in-law are 
going at it over a boy. These things happen, and both are appealing to Nellie, and Nellie's basically taking Catherine's side on this and saying, look, you don't want any part of that. What the hell is going on with him? We have no idea. We don't know where he got his money. We don't know how he's been living. We don't know where he's been these last three years. We have no idea why he's hanging out with Hindley, who he hates, who's been drinking and carousing and borrowing money against the land. She ran into Joseph. Nellie, he said, we hae a croner's question. Adder folks. One of them's a most getting his finger cut out with a hard and totter through sticking hisling like a cough. That's my story, you know. At so up all gone to grand sizes. He's known... F- Should I just skip it so we can just get... I mean, it's a long... Well, I'll just skip to the footnotes so we can understand what the hell he's saying, because I, I do not. Nelly, he said, we'll be having a coroner's inquest soon at our folks. One of them has almost got his finger cut off while holding the other back from sticking himself like a calf. That's master, you know. That's therefore about to go to the grand assizes. Assizes? 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 A court. Uh, But here, evidently, a euphemism for the last judgment. So, uh, he's going to die. He's not afraid of neither Paul, nor Peter, nor John, nor Matthew. Of none of them. Not he. It's as though he longs to set his brazen face against them. And yon bonny lad Heathcliff, you know, he's a rare one. He can grin as well as anybody at a real devil's jest. Does he never say anything of his fine living amongst us when he goes to the Grange? This is the way of it. Wake at sundown, dice, brandy, closed shutters, and candlelight till the next day at noon. Then the fool... Hindley, goes cursing and raving to his chamber, making decent folks dig their fingers in their ears for very shame. And the knave, Heathcliff, why, he can count his brass, his money, and eat and sleep and go off to his neighbors to gossip with his wife. Of course, he tells Dame Catherine how her father's gold runs into his pocket, and her father's son gallops down the broad road while he runs before him to open the gates well, I don't, I'm not sure I understand what's happening, but is 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 Hindley losing money to Heathcliff? Is Heathcliff sort of bleeding him dry? Is that what's happening? Um, I don't know, and I don't, I don't know. Uh, you, you are leagued with the rest, Ellen. She replied, "I'll not listen to your slanders. What malevol- malevolence you have to wish to convince me that there is no happiness in the world?" Whether she would have got over this fancy if left to herself, or persevered in nursing it perpetually, I cannot say. She had little time to reflect. The day after, there was a justice meeting at the next town. My master was obliged to attend, and Mr. Heathcliff, aware of his absence, called rather earlier than usual. Why, Heathcliff, you little scamp, showing up when the cat's away and here you are, the little mouse that you are, wanting to play. Catherine and Isabella were sitting in the library on hostile terms, but silent. The latter, alarmed at her recent indiscretion, and the disclosure she had made of her secret feelings in a transient fit of passion. The former, on mature consideration, really offended with her companion, and if she laughed again at her pertness, inclined to make it no laughing matter to her. 
She did laugh as she saw Heathcliff pass the window. I was sweeping the hearth, and I noticed a mischievous smile on her lips. Isabella, absorbed in her meditations, or a book, remained till the door opened, and it was too late to attempt an escape, which she would gladly have done had it been practicable. Come in, that's right, exclaimed the mistress gaily, pulling a chair to the fire. Here are two people sadly in need of a third to thaw the ice between them, and you are the very one we should both of us choose. Heathcliff, I'm proud to show you, at last, somebody that dotes on you more than myself. I expect you to feel flattered. Nay, it's not Nellie. Don't look at her. My poor little sister-in-law is breaking her heart by mere contemplation of your physical and moral beauty. Oh, my God. She, I mean, this is evil what she's doing right now. Is it not? Just horrendous, horrendous behavior. Just trying to humiliate the poor girl in front of Heathcliff, the object of her affection. That is just evil. It lies in your own power to be Edgar's brother. No, no, El Isabella, you shan't run off, she continued, arresting with feigned playfulness the confounded girl who had risen indignantly. We were quarreling like cats about you, Heathcliff, and I was fairly beaten in protestations of devotion and admiration. And moreover, I was informed that if I would but have the manners to stand aside, my rival, as she will have herself to be, would shoot a shaft into your soul that would fix you forever and send my image into eternal oblivion. I mean, my God, the cattiness, the terrible, terrible behavior on display right here. It is for shame, for shame. I am just disgusted with Catherine Linton, and I expect all of you to feel the same. We are wagging our fingers at her for this churlishness, this outrageous behavior. Terrible, terrible behavior. Catherine, said Isabella, calling up her dignity and disdaining to struggle from the tight grasp that held her. I'd thank you to adhere to the truth and not slander me even in joke. Mr. Heathcliff, be kind enough to bid this friend of yours release me. She forgets that you and I are not intimate acquaintances, and what amuses her is painful to me beyond expression. As the guest answered nothing, but took his seat and looked thoroughly indifferent what sentiments she cherished concerning him. She turned and whispered in earnest appeal for liberty to her tormentor. By no means, cried Mrs. Linton in answer. I won't be named a dog in the manger again. You shall stay. Now then, Heathcliff, why don't you evince satisfaction at my pleasant news? Isabella swears that the love Edgar has for me is nothing to that she entertains for you. I'm sure she made some speech of the kind, did she not, Ellen? And she has fasted ever since the day before yesterday's walk from sorrow and rage that I dispatched her out of your society under the idea of its being unacceptable." I think you belie her, said Heathcliff, twisting his chair to face them. She wishes to be out of my society now, at any rate. And he stared hard at the object of discourse, 
as one might do at a strange, repulsive animal, a centipede from the Indies, for instance, which curiosity leads one to examine in spite of the aversion it raises. The poor thing couldn't bear that. She grew white and red in rapid succession, and while tears beaded her lashes, bent the strength of her small fingers to loosen the firm clutch of Catherine, and perceiving that as fast as she raised one finger off her arm, another closed down, and she could not remove the whole together, she began to make use of her nails, and their sharpness presently ornamented the detainers with crescents of red. "'There's a tigress!' exclaimed Mrs. Linton, setting her free and shaking her hand with pain. Be gone, for God's sake, and hide your vixen face. How foolish to reveal those talons to him. Can't you fancy the conclusions he'll draw? Look, Heathcliff, they are instruments that will do execution. You must beware of your eyes. I'd wrench them off her fingers if they ever menaced me, he answered, brutally, when the door had closed after her. But what did you mean by teasing the creature in that manner, Cathy? You were not speaking the truth, were you? I assure you I was, she returned. She's been pining for your sake several weeks, and raving about you this morning, and pouring forth a deluge of abuse. Oh, that's in her, her voice. Because I represented your feelings in a plain light for the purpose of mitigating her adoration. But don't notice it further. I wish to punish her sauciness, that's all. I like her too well, my dear Heathcliff, to let you absolutely seize and devour her up. And I like her too ill to attempt it, said he, except in a very ghoulish fashion. You'd hear of odd things if I lived alone with that mawkish waxen face. The most ordinary would be painting on its white the colors of the rainbow and turning the blue eyes black every day or two. They detestably resemble Linton's. Delectably, observed Catherine. They are dove's eyes. Angels. She's her brother's heir, is she not? he asked after a brief silence. I should be sorry to think so, returned his companion. I mean, they're just awful the way they talk to each other about how they would torment her. My God. Returned his companion. Half a dozen nephews shall erase her title, please heaven. Abstract your mind from the subject at present. You are too prone to covet your neighbor's goods. Remember, this neighbor's goods are mine. If they were mine, they would be none the less that, said Heathcliff. But though Isabella Linton may be silly, she's scarcely mad, and in short, we'll dismiss the matter as you advise. From their tongues they did dismiss it, and Catherine probably from her thoughts. The other, I felt certain, recalled it often in the course of the evening. I saw him smile to himself, grin rather, and lapse into ominous musing whenever Mrs. Linton had occasion to be absent from the apartment. I determined to watch his movements. My heart invariably cleaved to the master's, in preference to Catherine's side. With reason, I imagined, for he was kind and trustful and honorable. And she, she could not be called the opposite. Yet she seemed to allow herself such wide latitude that I had little faith in her principles, and still less sympathy for her feelings. I wanted something to happen which might have the effect of freeing both Wuthering Heights and the Grange of Mr. Heathcliff, quietly, leaving us as we had been prior to his advent. His visits were a continual nightmare to me, 
and I suspected to my master also. His abode at the heights was an oppression past explaining. I felt that God had forsaken the stray sheep there to its own wicked wanderings, and an evil beast prowled between it and the fold, waiting his time to spring and destroy. Well, well, well. Some light-hearted madcap merriment has given way to tidings of doom. And you know I love doom. Well, I mean, uh, you know, it started off just a little crushy poo from Isabella onto Heathcliff, and then it got very mean very quickly. <laughs> Abusive, really. And now it has turned dark as the evening closes. And we have uh, closed the book on chapter 10. Another chapter down. The next one to begin next week. But Nellie, Mrs. Dean, is uh, recounting her own prescience, her premonitions of dismay and doom. And I cannot wait to discover the exact nature of that calamity. So we'll do that. We will do that next time on another calamitous episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedgren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Black. sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading. Uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Black. And I will see you next time.